This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the cave tonight are... Now, I've got a very good reason to reuse this one. Her Satanic Majesty, Sally Christie. I was hoping that would come back tonight. (laughs) Tonight's the night for it. (laughs) And joining us for the first time this year... Our hellish high priestess, Lisa Kovacevic. I've risen from the dead. (laughs) (laughs) On an eight-month hiatus. (laughs) (laughs) Satan lives. (laughs) On tonight's show, we'll find out what it's like to worship at the altar of the Dark Lord in Penny Lane's documentary, Hail Satan. I always feel like Ron Burgundy. Hail Satan? (laughs) (laughs) Question mark? There's a question, Hail Satan. Satan? <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy. Uh, we'll peek beneath the dark underbelly of, of the small town of Lumberton in tonight's retro title, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. And praise be to Elizabeth Moss, channeling her inner Courtney love in Alex Ross Perry's new film, Her Smell. But first, let's jump into Hail Satan. All across America nowadays, it seemed like fundamentalist Christians are increasingly using their political power to merge the constitutionally verboten silos of church and state. From pushing through life pro, so-called pro-life abortion laws to erecting giant Ten Commandments headstones in front of government buildings. But holding the line against this attempted Christian dominance are pockets of small but committed bands of people who fall under the banner of the Satanic Temple. Different from the Church of Satan, started by Anton LaVey in California in the 60s, the Satanic Temple, led by a man named Lucian Greaves, not his real name, claimed to be a more progressive, kinder, gentler group who exist, first and foremost, to campaign for religious freedom for all, to show America is not a monotheistic country, and that all belief systems should be accorded the same respect, the same proximity to power. Sure, they hold sacred rites involving masks and candles. One girl in particular is very fond of production design in her... (laughs) in the Detroit (laughs) chapter. Um, But it's all in the name of humanism, inclusion, civic-mindedness. And if the Ten Commandments are going to have a huge stone statue on public grounds, then why shouldn't one of the dark goat Lord Baphomet stand proudly beside it? Sally, we literally held off reviewing this last week. (laughs) Waiting for your imminent return to the show to discuss this. And you are wearing a very appropriate upside-down cross-knitted sweater. Did, <laughs> did this make you want to run to Adelaide and or Hobart, apparently, to join your local chapter of the Satanic Temple? Yeah, we Temple? don't have a local chapter in Melbourne of the Satanic Temple, which, yeah, so Adelaide and Hobart have one. Um, are you part of one? There's no, not one in Melbourne. No, but I mean... I could start no, one up. You could. <laughs> yes. I might be the spokesperson. Um, so, yeah, look, I this was a highly anticipated documentary for me. I've been waiting to see this for a long time. Uh, and I think Penny Lane's approach to it is good. It's a fun documentary. It's, you know, light. It's for something that's based on, I think, you know, people that are Satanists. And it's important, I think, to that we remember when we're talking about the um, temple, the satanic temple, is that they're non-theistic Satanists, which means that they don't literally worship Satan or a god. It's sort of more embracing Satan as a rebellion. Um, particularly one thing that I felt, I thought fell flat in this documentary was they do a lot with women's rights. You know, we have 
constantly hear the, you know, the devil's inside you, things like that when it comes to women, you know, abortion, all that kind of thing, that the um, Satanic Temple do a lot of good with, particularly Jex Blackmore, who I'll talk a little bit about later. Um, and that, that wasn't really explored in this documentary. So it could have gone a lot deeper. Mm. Um, it almost came off as being like the Satanic Temple are simply trolls. <laughs> I think they, <laughs> that, they, they call themselves yeah. the original troll. They say Satan is the original troll yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and, and it comes off as being... Th- there's a lot more that could have been explored here rather than just the um, the resurrection of the Baphomet statue that they wanted. Mm. But, yeah. I agree with you. It was a real light touch that, mm. that the director took to this film, um, which is, you know, it's fine. And it is, I mean, it's good because it is, a, there is a lot of humour to the subject matter in spite of the weighty issues that they're trying to challenge. Um, but I just kind of thought if you're profiling a group whose purpose is to expose the hypocrisy of the Christian church and its influence on American politics and the the, the treatment of the film gives this group um, a a very... um, Well, it's nothing short of sympathetic, you know? Um, So so in that sense, you know what the filmmaker's political position is. Mm -hmm. So she's already let us know that. I don't know why she couldn't allow herself to go a bit deeper. I thought that too. There was the one... I think it was only a very, very brief... Um, God, maybe not even five minutes where they mm. talked about reproductive rights and they even talked about, um, you know, groups of people from the Satanic Temple going and cleaning up at beaches and things like that and actual, you know, a lot of good that they do for the community and then that was really brushed over. So, yeah, I think it came off a lot more foolish than it should have. Should have, But yeah. it, was still, it's, it is still a fun watch. But um, I completely agree, Lisa. There was a room to go really deep with this. Particularly on that abortion debate. I found that mm-hmm. really fascinating. Um, there's a, a part in it where uh, somebody uh, goes into the court to challenge... Um, the Missouri, the state of Missouri, has um, legislated um, that life begins at inception into law, and and this isn't science. This is coming from religious groups, um, which means that um, women will not have the right to have an abortion. I think after eight weeks, um, uh, and so they they challenge them on that, and it's a really interesting debate that doesn't get explored at yeah, all. Yeah, and that mm. when that happened, that mm. was you know sort of big news, and that didn't even kind of get a look get a cut into the film it's yeah. strange it was really strange mm. because um in addition there are some really interesting characters in this yep. film i mean the leader of the seclusion greaves um is fascinating articulate um ha- puts forth some very intriguing compelling arguments mm-hmm. he made me want to sign up you mm. know yeah um which i think a lot of people going into this film will feel that way yep. walking out they'll be like well you, you you're making you've made some completely reasonable arguments yep. here where do where do i sign up um the director signed up yeah. after <laughs> oh, making really? the film as well yeah, yeah i'm not surprised <laughs> and yet you know so little about him or his history. Mm. I mean, you know that he, that um, Lucian Greaves is a pseudonym, but it's a pseudonym for another pseudonym, yeah, and we don't go any further than that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting as well, the opening sequence where he initially hired an actor to speak on behalf of the <laughs> satanic temple, and it just failed miserably. Yeah. But it also, it was. I found it really eye-opening, um, because obviously we're in Australia 
religion isn't, I guess, well, Christianity isn't as predominant as it is over in, in the, the States. States. Yeah. That, yeah, I think we oftentimes forget that and this really kind of drilled that home about, you know, how much of a religious country that is and how much they really do need that separate um, separation from church and state. state yeah. Like it's a really huge, huge deal. I agree, but there's also, it's funny now, now that we have a prime minister singing, you know, yeah. film singing with Hillsong and, yep. you know, and it made me think of, and and that all that fascinating stuff that uh, the theory that uh, one of the writers um, talking in this documentary about. Uh, the religious right basically coming about in the 50s, mm. that before the 1950s, America were a much more secular country. Mm. And, and, like, and the whole hilarious, like, the, the, you know, the origin of the whole Ten Commandments statues. That where was they fascinating. Came, yeah, yeah, it was, I had no idea I had about no that. I had no idea about that either. It was <laughs> awesome. I think we can give it, that's not too much of a yeah. spoiler. Mm. Um, basically, uh, the Christian right was going around erecting all these Ten Commandment uh, statues, which look very much like, the Ten Commandments featured in Cecil B. DeMille's film of the same name. Um, and where were, where were they erecting them? Out the front of... Um, like government government buildings. buildings. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the Satanic Temple was challenging, challenging this um, by threatening to erect Baphomet statues, and that's how they, they stopped it happening. But the funny thing was that these statues came out of a film, and they had been distributed by Cecil promo, B. DeMille's yeah. film Paramount. company, Paramount, yeah, uh, <laughs> in the 50s to promote the film. And yeah. it just says so much about American culture. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And this it's whole incredible. thing was like, they think, oh, this is our right. This is our Christian. We're a Christian yeah. country. It's like, now literally a film studio yeah, yeah, sent you a, these things exactly. for promotion. It's a film prop. And you believe the promotion, which as you say, is as telling about America as anything mm. else. Um, but, you know, it made me think, it's like, yeah, we need to, like, you know, we're re- you know things like religion and, and and stuff is being, you know, dragged kicking and screaming into our debates now by people like it's Corey true. Bernardi and stuff. And yep. it's like, we are a secular country. Stop mm. following the American lead. And it's interesting to see that America aren't necessarily what they believe, so many yep. people believe they are too. I found that that whole sidebar super, uh, super interesting. Mm. I think you're right. I think they could have gone in. I mean, they did, you know, there was an attempt to, 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 to portray uh, the Satanic Temple as very cuddly and very, and and that's a whole thing of like, you know, showing them picking up rubbish and doing yeah. this sort of civic-minded stuff. Yes. <laughs> oh, they were so lovable, cool. lovable Satanists. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, and that's great. And that's, you know, that was uh, part of Penny Lane's reason to make the film was to sort of, you know, educate people to what, Satanists are actually like and mm. not the, you know, the satanic panic myth of the 80s. And I like the way it addressed all that as well. Um, and absolutely could have gone deeper. Um, and there's a little uh, of stuff about the uh, conflicts, internal conflicts as well, including yeah. Jax. Yeah, so um, Jax Blackmore, who was the um, spokesperson for the Detroit chapter, um she, and fond of production design. And fond of production design <laughs> and a performance artist. Mm. Um, the way that she is portrayed in this I thought I found quite interesting because she is a sort of a, a quite well-known performance artist and um, obviously that comes into her protests and things that she's um, doing in this film. And it was really kind of a stark contrast to everybody else that we see um, in this documentary where they're sort of just writing letters and doing legal documents and things like that. So... Um, yeah, I, I found it interesting. I, I don't want to give too much of it mm. away, but I did find it interesting the way that Penny Lane d- chose to portray Jax Blackmore and she What is, way do you think she portrayed her? I don't think in a particularly good way. Well, no, it wasn't a... Um, 
And she does do a lot of really incredible work, mm. like hard, hard work for um, women's reproductive rights. She's very vocal. She still is. And yeah. um, she yeah. kind of, Penny Lane kind of, uh, depicts her as an extremist, really. Yeah. And I think, but I do like that um, Jack's got the final word and she says something like, The temple is going to, su- I'm scared the temple is going to suffer the fate of its adversary, the Christian faith, in becoming institutionalized mm-hmm. and sanitized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I-, I think that too. And I was glad <coughs> that they put that in there. And I, I, th- she has sort of spoken quite a lot in the interviews since then, saying that there are a lot of people that do consider themselves Satanists in this kind of um, non-theistic way Mm. that don't want to be a part of the Satanic Temple for that reason, that they feel that it's becoming dogmatic and, you know. Yeah, Mm. I agree. Which is, yeah, contrary to the whole reason why they formed. exactly. Um, And, yeah, like, I mean, admittedly, that stage moment was a moment of overreaching. Yes. It's something that perhaps was like, "Mm, we might think it, but we don't say it because it's kind of illegal. But... um, But going through, um, but yeah, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, they should have highlighted a lot more of what she does in her own yeah, because she does do incredible, incredible work. Yeah, I just wish the film just the film just so consciously avoids any kind of moral instruction, Mm. which is which is okay. I like sort of I like moral ambiguity in films. I I like them in like a Kurosawa film, but (laughs) but in this kind of film, I think the issues that they're exploring are so prescient that, that there's no. You don't have time to waste, and I think if mm. you know your political position, I, I just wish she had a stood. The filmmaker had a stood by it, and I just feel like it just d- didn't take as hard a line as it could. Yeah, have, I, I totally know? agree, and I I think that if she's going okay, this is you know being screened primarily to an American audience, mm. and this is the message that we want to get that these Satanists aren't necessarily bad people. So let's go light and fluffy. Yeah, but. Yeah, it would have been a much more powerful documentary I, yeah. if it had have focused in on what, you know, it needed to. Even just around <coughs> one issue, you mm-hmm. know, I, and I think she could have achieved, like, someone like what Michael Moore achieved with Bowling for, for Columbine yep. on mm. educating an audience, a wider yep. audience on um, America's obsession with um, gun ownership and mm-hmm. their, you know, hatred for gun control and laws and stuff. I feel like uh, she almost went there with using sort of, she was interjecting archival footage in, at, at times and she was almost wanting to go that bit further but just resisted mm. for whatever reason and it's just it's a shame because um i just feel too much is at stake in the age of trump yeah and i just wish she had have really committed because i think what this group is doing is um, is incredible and i'd recommend people seeing the film for that reason yeah it's definitely know? worth watching like 100 mm. percent, it is worth watching but um yeah, it would have been a lot better if she had gone yeah. deeper with it. But having said that, mm. everyone at this table has said we would totally join. It's exactly. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> so I'm starting the Melbourne chapter. Have yeah. <laughs> if I could be true. bothered organising people <laughs> outside of a film set, I would totally do it. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, it's that thing. It's like in the end, you know, every it, a lot of people that watch it are kind of mobilised and seeing this good work they do and go, I would like to be a part of that. And, so maybe I, it is effective in that mm, way. It might be. I think for me, it just came down to the tenets of the satanic yes. temple itself which are presented you know by they're presented by these really intelligent thoughtful articulate uh members and and their ideologies are sensible humane progressive yep. and fundamentally practical and mm-hmm. um, and so yeah I, i'm like sign me up and you know one of them says in the film you know i, I toyed with atheism but it was boring and it didn't have you know fun clothing or something. <laughs> exactly like <laughs> one thing i really i really did love about um hail satan was their how sort of almost campy they made it with their costumes and things like that. I liked that. I liked that fun aspect of it. And I liked that they were, you know, going and protesting and wearing devil horns and, you know... 
Yeah, yeah. putting putting it, you Even know, the theatre. Well, you know, mm. Christianity is theatre, and yes. they're just reflecting that back to them. Oh, and it's the perfect. I mean, to use the devil yep. as iconography is just going to have the mm-hmm. media like at your front door. So it's very clever yes. the, the the way that they've you know chosen to name themselves even though they don't really practice anything yep. satanic no. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's the uh that's the levey in uh, satanist job uh <laughs> we're in california uh hail satan is currently screening exclusively at cinema nova you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r fm in melbourne australia now it's time to dig into our retro title for this evening, David Lynch's 1986 neo-noir, Blue Velvet. The fictional middle American logging town of Lumberton appears to be an American dream. Freshly mowed lawns behind picket fences, endless blue skies above as a kaleidoscope of flowers bloom below and everybody's friendly and smiling. But when young Jeffrey Beaumont, played by Kyle MacLachlan, finds a severed ear in the park near his home, he starts to discover not everything in Lumberton is as it seems. After delivering the ear to the police detective up the street, Jeffrey can't quite let it go and urges the detective's daughter, Sandy, played by Laura Dern, to help him follow, uh, help him follow where this mystery leads. But neither of them are prepared for how dark the trail will become, leading them first to the tortured, sultry torch singer Dorothy Valens, played by Isabella Rossellini, then into the clutches of the demonic local hood Frank Booth, played by Dennis Hopper. Whether Jeffrey and Sandy escape with their lives or not, they will certainly lose their innocence and discover a waking nightmare that's existed all this time alongside the relative tranquility of the world they thought they knew. Lisa, how did you find Lumberton after all these years? And after all is said and done, which one is the king of beers, Heineken or Pabst Blue Ribbon? <laughs> that is a great line. Um, well, I'll, I'll take issue with you on something because Lumberton actually isn't fictional. It exists in North Carolina. Does it really? It does. I think he did write it at, to be a fictional place, but as with so many of David Lynch's films, there's lots of spooky coincidences that happen around his well, films and filmmaking process that he found out. It actually does exist. How did I miss that? Uh, I only discovered it yesterday. I was watching a doco about um, the making of it. Um, yeah, how did I find it? Well, you know what? <clears throat> I'm a mad um, David Lynch fan, so when you said that we were doing Blue Velvet as a retrospective, I you know, nearly <laughs> fell over <laughs> in giddy with the excitement. And the, and the thing that worries me is when I get so excited about something, I'm like, what am I going to say? There's too much to say. Yeah, I feel, um, I feel exactly the so same I, way. I don't know how to... Um, I had to step back, take a few deep breaths, <laughs> maybe do some transcendental meditation. Mm. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> as David Lynch is a big purporter of, um, and uh, sort of try to go at the film with a different, from a different angle that I hadn't thought of before. So I was looking. So what I did was I looked at all the films that came out that year. Um, be- oh wow! Because this film. It came out in 1986 and so much of it um, is really a precursor to what he does with Twin Peaks, a television series, oh, yeah. a couple of years later with small town, um, um, you know, middle America and something bad has happened to a woman. Um, uh, and anyway, so going back to like 1986, I'm thinking, well, what else was out at that time? Because I was a, a very, very young child, uh, a toddler, um, when, it, when it was first released and I know it had a really big impact on my parents' generation. Um, so looking at, and it was, you know, 
created in the Reagan era and all the films at that time, like the top ten films at that time are things like Top Gun, <laughs> Crocodile Dundee, um, <laughs> thanks, Paul, um, <laughs> Platoon, The Karate Kid 2, Star Trek, Back to School, Aliens, The Golden Child, blah, 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 Ferris Bueller's Day, Day Off, really big popcorn sort of Hollywood uh, movies, lots of teen flicks and stuff at that time. But there was also quite a few sort of nostalgia flicks like um, Stand By Me um, and oh, there was that other one... Um, Couple is oh, well. It was Zia Troop did um, Peggy Sue got married. Do you remember mm-hmm. that weird yep. film? Um, so um, Rob Reiner did Stand by Me, which many people will be familiar with. But they were all really nostalgic films for the 1950s mm. for for a really a simpler time. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because, uh, like so many of David Lynch's films, they have a very overtly 1950s aesthetic. Um, although, as Lynch says, uh, you know. Even period films really reflect the time that they were made more yes. than they do the era that they're trying to reflect. Um, so what I found interesting about this film, it happens in like this Reagan era, which was really about a return to um, American innocence. Uh, I mean, they elected a 1950s movie actor, for God's sake. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's how much they were yearning for this sort of more innocent time. But I think what Lynch does so beautifully in this film is he uses uh, all the iconography of the 1950s, all the symbolism. Um, and then he undercuts it, he undermines it um, with this real American surrealism uh, and he, what he's essentially doing is ripping away the veneer of the white picket fences, that opening shot that you sort of referenced in your intro um, of white picket fences, of green lawns, of uh, men on trucks waving at you. The opening scene is all those things with Bobby Vinton's Blue Velvet playing, which is this, you know, schmaltzy 1950s track and then somebody has a heart attack on a lawn and falls to the ground with water spraying everywhere and a dog grabbing at the water. David Lynch's dog, Sparky, Sparky, who he calls the love of his life. That's right. And is just mad for biting water. (laughs) And then the camera slowly zooms in on this man dying, but it it bypasses the man and goes to the grass and then we go underneath and we see this sort of world of ants and decay and and he's letting signalling this is where we're going, we're going to rip apart this this idea of um, this perfect middle America which really only benefited a few, you know, Mm. of which he was one of them, you know, and Kyle MacLachlan uh, as Jeffrey Beaumont really, um, you know, many people say that he is the the David Lynch uh, for the screen. Yep. he embodies the innocence of 1950s America, but he's very quickly corrupted. Uh, and um, Dennis Hopper's Frank tells him, you and I are just the same. Um, and that happens after a scene in which um, Jeffrey uh, is sexually and physically violent with uh, a woman that he thinks he's out to protect. Hmm. Uh, so, anyway, there's so much to talk about. And then let somebody else yeah. speak. <laughs> no, I feel um, the same. This is quite easily my favourite David Lynch film. I think this film is a perfect film. Every single frame of it is perfect. There is not one moment of this film that I don't absolutely adore. If I haven't said it before, Sally Christie, I think I'm in love with you right now for saying that. (laughs) But it is. It's a perfect perfect film. And, you know, I've watched it a million times and today I was doing the same thing. I was thinking, shit, what do you even say about Blue Velvet? Then I was like, oh, I'm sure I wrote a mini essay on it. But I didn't dig it up. So I'm not going to bore you all with my Aww. second year uni essay on Blue Velvet, which I'm sure I did. Yeah. <laughs> but it is. The way that um, it's just... I, I do think it's his most accessible film. Hmm. Um, 
But the way that he, we go on this kind of nightmare with Jeffrey Carl McLaughlin's character and the content of this film is so dark and awful but it is executed in such a gorgeous way that I don't think anybody can replicate that. Like, I I don't know if I can... I can't speak for both of you but I... With the, there's, you know, lots of, you know, physical abuse, sexual ab- abuse in this film. Frank Booth is one of probably the best villain ever on screen. <laughs> mm. But it still just feels beautiful and dreamy, even when we're being subjected to these images that are so awful. Mm. And, um, yeah, I just... I even think that <laughs> Dean Stockwell's character, Ben, the In Dream sequence... Mm. I would go as far as saying that's probably my favourite scene ever wow. in cinema. Wow. That's big. I've got chills. Like, <laughs> <laughs> It's incredibly like, inspired, that mm, scene. Yeah. I love it. I yeah. love it. I just think it's perfect. I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm piggybacking here, but let me just well, say this. Picked I picked it. the yeah. darn thing. Yeah. This, <laughs> it was your retro pick. Um, I'm a giant Lynch fan as well. Mm. I, he's one of the three or four filmmakers I just can't be objective about. I, I just, <laughs> I think he's a genius. I have no objectivity. Oh my god, I think I'm the same. What terrible radio! Fanning <laughs> <laughs> <all> out, <laughs> David. And this is like I love all of like I love so like I love all of his films. Look, I like Dune. Dune. Dune's an interesting outlier, but the rest I love. But this is his best for me. It's not only that; it's one of my top ten films of all time, all time yeah. it's one of my five somebody asked years ago if you had like off the top of your head if you had and 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 listeners you can do this at home if you're called to a bomb shelter right now and you've, you can only grab five films to take with you into the bomb shelter what do you take spirited away Mulholland drive um, <laughs> <laughs> no i don't know oh, oh god yeah i would definitely take see for me it's Mulholland drive is my yeah, favorite right. Lynch film but um yeah it's a perfect that's a perfect film to me but i totally get the blue velvet is yeah. for you. Yeah. And this is one of my bomb shelter films. Um, mm. And I just think it's a absolutely 100% a gray cell. I think it's a perfect film. Like, and you and I, I was lucky enough to see it last week, actually uh, on the big screen, uh, the Thornbury picture house screened it. And it's like, it, it's so intoxicating. The minute it starts, you just feel like you're on this kind of adventure. And Lynch has talked about being influenced by films like Rear Window mm. and um, and Sunset Boulevard mm. and films like this where that he finds intoxicating and he feels like you just want to be in that room with those people and following them. Mm. And he's produced the same thing here. Um, I can't help thinking that Jeffrey Beaumont is kind of Lynch's fantasy camp version of himself. Yeah. Like, this is how I would have liked to have spent my you know, first summer out of yeah. high school investigating this case and falling in love with it. But, but then, like, beyond that, yeah, you've got all this ugliness and all this, and, and it doesn't shy away from that. And if there's, I mean, Frank Booth just as a villain is terrifying, um, but, and just, like, almost comically unhinged, but, yeah. but, but really frightening, yeah. yeah. And there's, but there's also like, is there a better avatar for toxic masculinity on screen ever in no. the history of cinema? Like, mm. like it's just pure male rage. Mm. And um, and uh, Isabella Rossellini's um, wonderful as as Dorothy. Because I mean, we all forget she hadn't acted very much at this point. Well, like, this one was, other film, yeah, one other film. That's it. And yeah. this was her second movie. Mm. And and given this amazingly layered performance of mm. someone that's always in two states, mm. um, is quite incredible. Um, and the bravery of you know of that performance. I mean, you know, you, the bravery is a relative term, as we all know. But bravery in terms of you know what you reveal of yourself on screen, both psychologically and physically, yeah. she just hits it all here. Um, 
and it's a phenomenal, phenomenal performance. And you know, every everything works, but. As you know, it's almost like that statement. Like uh, I think it was somebody. Um, I want to say Pauline Kael um, called him uh, called David Lynch the first great, the first popular American surrealist. Mm. And that um, and Blue Velvet is definitely the most accessible work, as you said, Sal, of that sort of uh, of that thing. But it's just this perfect vision of the the corrosiveness that lies underneath this sort of you know modern american capitalist sort of um dream it's built for itself and mm. and, the, and the ugliness that's overlooked and and hidden within um and you know and there are just brilliant things. i mean yeah dean stockwell uh, miming that is just there's something again something creepy but also something oh. weirdly attractive about it as that's well excellent. um brad Dourif dancing with a snake in the background mm. <laughs> and, um and, and just um but and uh, you know and it's sort of it's it manages to be intoxicating hilarious heartbreaking satirical <clears throat> terrifying all at once and it's just it, it, like it's it should be so shown in screenwriting seminars it should be so like it is just yeah it's a masterpiece it is and it's funny you mentioned june because he made this off the back of june on a like micro budget he'd made june for dino de laurentis's production company and june was this behemoth of a sci-fi fantasy novel and no one wanted to touch it and they gave it to david but he didn't have final cut and um I think it was it nearly broke him as a filmmaker. He was he almost didn't want to do film anymore. He was so destroyed by the whole process um, that you know what was left was not his vision. Uh, and then to Dino De Laurentiis's credit, he sort of said, "Look, I've got you know the film flopped. June flopped, and it was a massive budget." Um, and he to De Laurentiis's credit, David presented um, Blue Velvet to him. De Laurentiis didn't understand it, but he understood that Lynch was a visionary and he gave him free reign and David said, look, can I have final cut on this? He said, I can't write that into your contract because everyone's going to want final cut, <laughs> but I will shake your hand on it. And he <laughs> did, and he did give him final cut and it is the film that we now know and love and appreciate today. Yeah, there is so much. So what, this was 86 and then Twin Peaks was 89? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they shot yeah. at 89 there, and aired in 1990. Yeah, there is, right. yeah, so much that we can see of Twin Peaks in this, but I... I would even go as far. I, I do think that this is more accessible than Twin Peaks. Not Twin Peaks: The Return. No. Um, no. Yes. But Twin. I, I think that yeah, this is really. It's definitely surrealist piece for sure. But um, yeah, it is more accessible. I think than Twin Peaks, which you know was loved by. It was know, adored. It was but, I mean, it was loved by um, soap opera audiences as yeah. much as it was by fans of surrealism. I was like, I think I was nine when Twin Peaks came out, and. I had a strange upbringing, but I watched a lot of Alfred Hitchcock films before then. So I'd watched, I'd had a very healthy diet of Hitchcock. And you mentioned Rear Window before, which was one of my favourite films as a really young child. My parents were really into old cinema. And so I was just obsessed with Hitchcock. And I just knew that a good film needs a good mystery to really mm. get you in. Um, and I remember I devoured every Hitchcock film bar Psycho, which I wasn't allowed to watch till I was 16. And then... Twin Peaks came out and I wasn't allowed to watch it but I used to uh, I was so intrigued by that haunting soundtrack mm. whenever it played I used to peer in a very Lynchian way through the or in a very Jeffrey Beaumont way <laughs> through the crack of my door to watch Twin Peaks as a young child and I thought oh my god somebody has taken Hitchcock where I wanted him to go oh, which nice. is I think what Lynch does I think he just takes he he, he takes Hitchcock to an even darker place. He really yeah. throws it up on screen for you. It's a it's a thing of nightmares. He it really 
is a dream factory with Lynch. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting rewatching Blue Velvet is Lynch often gets criticised for his um, treatment of or his fetish, fetishization of the female body and and the violence that he inflicts upon it. But I th- always feel like with him there's a real purpose to it. Yes. Yeah, um, I don't think it's on. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I would yeah. really um, argue against that. Mm. Um, but with Blue Velvet, I loved the way that Isabella Rossellini's Dorothy, um, which again is such a great name for her. Mm. It, it's got connotations of Wizard of Oz and um, that, again, the 1950s era. Um, but she's not presented in a fetishized, beautiful way. No. Her body is almost ugly um, and it's um, flawed and she stumbles around and stoops. And stoops, and, yeah. yeah. And I thought that that was fabulous. And I was reading an interview with her where she said there's, there's a scene where she's naked on the street exiting a house. It's a, quite a terrifying scene. Um, and she used that image of that na- the napalm girl mm. um, running oh. down the street as inspiration. And you can really see that. Yeah. Um, it's his tortured, it's the tortured feminine. And I think that's what I love about Lynch. He goes there with, whereas I think Hitchcock really did torture the feminine. Yes. You know, whereas I feel like Lynch has a, an empathy there, yeah. which really comes through that I really uh, appreciate. And that scene is, is, a, is a scene from his childhood, from Lynch's yeah, childhood. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. yeah um, where he's, The woman, come, naked woman with blood on her coming out of darkness. That's right. Yeah, and he was a kid. He yeah. was a kid and him and his friends saw this woman exiting a house all beaten up and naked. And, and he sort of said, you know, it, it should have been something titillating and I knew it was horrifying and him and his friend burst into tears as children. And I mm. think that's what he does with female with the female form in his films uh, and that I really appreciate. Well, it's like, it's the whole thing. It's like um, he has that, that always had that empathy. Like uh, Obviously, actresses love working with him. Mm. And so many, I've heard people say about Twin Peaks' Fire Walk With Me, which has some incredibly disturbing stuff in it mm. regarding abuse and so forth, um, that women who have gone through that have come up to him and said, how did you know? Mm. Like, mm. it's just that... And it's yeah, there's something he's tapping into, and there's and there's a general empathy as well as tapping into that dream state, but also tapping it in that humanity. Yes, that makes Lynch Lynch's work so beautiful, and, and you know annoys the hell out of me when people say, "Oh, he just makes up dumb shit, puts it on." No, no, no. Yeah. he's working. You say through. you're an idiot. Yeah, mate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Jog on, pal. Yeah, um, yeah no, it's he, I think yeah, it's just his films are beautiful, and this is the this is the the one. Like this is if you know. If you got to pick one, this is. Um, I don't want to pick one. I want you to see all of them. <laughs> mm. But play, yeah, Blue Velvet's a, a phenomenon. Where can people see it? People can see it streaming on Stan, and it's available to rent or buy on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube Rentals. Three triple R. Our final film tonight is the new film from writer director Alex Ross Perry, Her Smell. After a rush of fame and a few years touring with her band Something She in the thick of the mid-90s, indie rock star Becky Something is becoming a train devoid of its track. She's fighting and playing mind games with her fellow band members, Ellie Vanderwolf and Marielle Hell, taking her direction from a shonky shaman, infuriating her long-suffering manager and hurling insults at her patient ex-husband and father of the child she barely knows how to relate to. Structured in similar fashion to Danny Boyle and Aaron Sorkin's Steve Jobs, We meet Becky and this group at five specific moments in their lives over an 11-year span. After the gig that begins to permanently splinter the band, in the recording studio Becky Won't Leave, which is intended for hot new group The Acker Girls, who Becky both befriends and antagonises. Before the gig, Becky promises to play with The Acker Girls that turns disastrous before they even hit the stage. Becky at home in recovery and finally before a reunion gig that may or may not come off. 
All of these vignettes are bookended by videotape footage of the young and optimistic band's initial rush of success. Sally, did this slice of celebrity skin fill your hole or <laughs> leave you longing for the shores of, say, Malibu? That was fantastic, Paul. That was my favourite one yet. <laughs> I love that. Oh, I'm all my 90s riot girl. I'm living. Um, this was, you know what I was really excited to see in this film? Eric Stoltz. Yes. Playing the manager. That was great. I was really excited by that. Um, it was repetitive, this film, in lots of ways. I can see why there's, you know, a lot to do with, you know, being, I guess, addiction in this film. And I think that probably most people have had some kind of experience with somebody or themselves that have, you know, been in the cycle of addiction. And it is that kind of repetitive frustration which comes through in this film within the first 10 minutes where Mm. I was like, okay, come on, let's go from here. And it's just, yeah, it kind of felt in that cycle for me, but I don't know if that's what they were trying to achieve for the viewer, you know, getting that frustration through. Elizabeth Moths was very convincing. Who wrote the music for this? Do we know? Oh, I did have that written. Because yeah. it, was, um, it was by Keegan DeWitt and Alicia Bongnano. Yeah, because the music was great too and mm. I think it really did kind of capture that <coughs> 90s riot girl time. It sounded quite authentic. Mm. Mm. Yeah. The score in particular sounded like a John Bryan score. Mm. Like it had that discordant and I thought that was really great. I really dug this film. Um, I, the score kind of had this sort of gather, like this sort of discordant gathering storm thing yep. going on and Alex Ross Perry in his previous film like Golden Exits and um, uh, uh, Queen of Earth and Listen Up Philip, he creates these kind of social car crash moments and sets up all these characters and you see them inexorably heading towards, a, you know, a great and terrible moment, you know. Um, and I think he does the same here. I think you're right. I think there is that repetition at times. Um, I love the performances. I, I think Elizabeth Moss is brilliant in She's this film. amazing. She's, I uh, think, anything she touches, she's really great in. Like, she's incredible. Mm. Yeah, she's hit her straps in a serious way. And I, I, I did think this film was a little bit too long and I kind of wanted the song at the end to be better, the reunion song. But I liked the, I liked the, 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 I liked the journey here and I liked the, cathar- the, the, the um, ending it came to. I was really surprised. the title's meaning. Yeah. <laughs> I was really surprised that this... Um, is well I'm sure Paul will tell you later but it is on Amazon Prime um it was screened at the Sydney Film Festival just last month. I'm really surprised that this didn't get a theatrical run. It's a it's the equivalent of a straight to DVD. Yeah, like yeah. really surprised by that because I remember reading about it when mm. in the film festival Sydney Film Festival program last mm. month and going, okay, that's worth checking out. So I was yeah, yeah. really surprised that it didn't get a run here. I'm not surprised. I, I <laughs> thought <laughs> I thought her smell could have done with a question mark at the end of it, like Hail Satan as well. Her smell? What did you call it that? I thought that That's too. the most disgusting title. <laughs> I, I mean, there is a reason at the very, very end. Is it? I missed it. What was it's, it? It's the found... daughter. Oh, oh, yeah. she smells her hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I thought it stunk. I didn't like oh. it at all. <laughs> Her smell. It's done. Uh, that's that's some Roger, Roger Ebert work. Yeah, there. that's right. Totally. <laughs> We've missed you, Lisa. Yeah, I know. 
<laughs> the aromas of this film. Um, yeah, look, I, I agree with Sally. I found I found it really repetitive. I also thought um, the structure, oh, sorry, the um, that sort of style of doing these snapshots throughout periods of her life that are just extended takes um, in a, in a recording studio or whatever weren't compelling enough. It's an interesting um, idea, as it, but it was it felt gimmicky to me and it didn't really compel the story. What little there was of it along at all. Um, and I also thought that this sto- that story of the trappings of fame, etc., has just been told so many times and, and better than, than this one. Um, I thought she was fine, I, 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 but I actually felt Elizabeth Elizabeth Moth really um, lent into cliche a lot with the performance. Um, uh, it, yeah, it reeked of Courtney Love. Yeah, um, <laughs> definitely. It did. I mean, yeah. that was yeah. who they were going for. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Um, the other thing that I found really difficult to reconcile, because the, like you said, the score was actually quite good, um, but the music that the band played was atrocious. It was so dull and, um, you know, it's kind of like, this is what 90s music sounded like. Yeah. No, no, it didn't. Um, it was, I, yeah, I, I kind of thought that I was like yeah this is you know the tracks that they play yeah yeah I didn't I, yeah see I'm with you actually that's one of the few things like I yeah. really like this but I, I didn't think the music was quite up to snuff no so that you open it opens with uh, Elizabeth Moss performing um, and the, I just thought it sounded terrible uh, and then it ends with the comeback and it and again I was just like this is n- no better um, and there's a period there's a, a period there where this sort of up-and-coming girl group who really admire um, th- th- what is the band's name again Oh, something, something she. Something she. I just again, it's a terrible. <laughs> something smells. <laughs> something smells. <laughs> I reckon I keep getting all that confused as well. Um, there's this up and coming group. Um, I'm trying to remember what their name is. No, the Yaka Girls. The Yaka Girls, um, which is populated um, by people like what was that C- actress? That- Cara Delevingne. Cara Delevingne. I don't even understand why that woman's famous, but I know that she's very famous. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's a got, model. She's got eyebrows and she's very famous. Mm. And so she's in it again, not a good actor. Um, and so they're this up and coming band, and um, the way that Elizabeth Moss sort of treats them is just, just sort of lent into cliche uh, too much for them. And she sort of says, Okay, girls, I'm going to get you to, yeah, you're going to, I'll ditch my old band and you'll be my new backup band. And let's show, show us what the kids are doing these days. And then, then even when they started playing, I was like, So the kids are just doing what you've been doing. <laughs> that, that sounds as shit as your music does. It was really, I just thought there's so much. There's so many talented musicians here that, you know, get a lot of airplay on Triple R and, um, you know, that they could have tapped into any number of mm-hmm. fantastic artists that are doing sort of great, um, you know, nostalgic sounding work mm. and they just didn't. I don't know why they use such bad music because it really let the whole film down for me. That was the main thing I felt <laughs> with it. Sorry. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I like I love the visual style of this film. I liked it was very kind of, it had this sort of, Colourful, but also handheld, in-your-face kind yeah. of viewer, the verite sort of thing to it. But, yeah, I can see that if if you're not on its... It was. A, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Vox Lux, which we saw earlier in the year. I was going to ask you really guys. liked that yeah. too, and yeah. I didn't like Vox and that's Lux the thing. at all. It was another film where, mm. like, the music should have been better. It was almost like we, we almost wish they got to the end, went to play the song and cut to black, mm, you know yeah. what I mean? Mm. Um, but I liked the, the way they both play, and they both... Yeah, like, they both have great 
lead performances. They're both about the trappings of fame and have, you know, I, I'm also Do a fan really of characters. Do you think that who... Natalie Portman was that good? Though? <laughs> I did. Capital I she was A great. acting Natalie Portman. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I found, and that's the thing. Your mileage may vary with this sort of stuff, and I could totally see Lee. If at least if this film kind of is annoying you twenty minutes in, mm. you probably don't want to stick around for the whole mm. hundred and thirty-four. Rep- yeah, yeah, um, it's very repetitive. Oh, I see. I felt the cinema very taste. I felt the camera work really inconsistent. Like it was, it was sort of still and jilted, and there was lots of cuts. It was very fast paced, and then it was like it would meander there for a while, and then it'd be like, oh, quick, do a zoom. So we've got to do the verite thing, you know. It was just all over the place, and I didn't appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, look, we had to look. At least we all agreed on blue velvet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Five hundred stars. Important. No, I think what's important velvet. is we all disagreed on this. It makes for better content. Uh, you've been listening. Oh, I should say, her smell is now streaming on Amazon Prime and Canopy, and is available to rent or buy on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube Rentals. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Sally Christie, Lisa Kovacevic, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discussed Hail Satan, now screening exclusively at Cinema Nova. Our retro title, Blue Velvet, now streaming on Stan and available to rent or buy on iTunes, Google Play and YouTube Rentals, and Her Smell, also available to rent or buy at those outlets. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at triplr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find podcasts. Next week, our intrepid cavers will explore <laughs> the life of film. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah. <laughs> We're racing the clock. <laughs> Next week, our intrepid cavers will explore the life of filmmaking pioneer Alice Guy-Blachet in the documentary Be Natural, the horror, the horror of Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Final Cut, and a retro title will find its bits falling off Jeff Goldblum in <laughs> David Cronenberg's horror classic The Fly. Oh. A huge thank you to Lisa for both panelling and producing our show this week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.